friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, episode five. My name is James Hickson, and I'm and here is. Oh, sorry, I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> you no, go go ahead. You after you. Well, and I'm Trey Lawson. <laughs> I was going to say the Leo McGarry to my Jed Bartlett, but you know, <laughs> you go right ahead. No, because I was watching that episode where. Okay, it's the episode of West Wing where he has to pick a designated survivor before a State of the Union address. Right. I think the episode's called "He May from Time to He Will from Time to Time," referring to the part of the Constitution where it talks about the president giving the State of the Union, and he's lecturing his Secretary of Agriculture about what he should do if you know the unthinkable happens or you know the plot to <laughs> a designated survivor happens, where. The president, the cabinet, the Congress are all killed. What he, the first thing you should do is, and he's like, "Do you have a friend that's smarter than you?" <laughs> yeah, your best friend. Yeah, uh, make him your chief of staff. I'm like, okay. So if I was president, I make Trey Lawson my oh. chief of staff. <laughs> so yeah, that works for me. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yes, uh, this is Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast, not a West Wing podcast. They're are plenty of those already. And I've never uh, actually we talk- watched all of the West Wing, so I would not be good at that one. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. That... Okay, screw it. We're doing a West Wing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no. Group of ideas, we talk about the underappreciated Marvel horror line, originating in the 1970s and carrying forward to the modern day, with characters like Dracula, Jack Russell, Werewolf by Night, Man-Thing, Morbius, and more. And speaking of, we're talking about the first appearance of one of our main Spotlight characters, Ghost Rider, because we're going to be talking about Marvel Spotlight number five. And I think this is one that a lot of our listeners are very excited about, Trey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he's the character that really starts to bridge the gap between the horror comics and superhero comics. And we'll talk more about that after we, we... Uh, summarize the issue, but um, I guess it's worth noting that this isn't the first Marvel character to be called Ghost Rider, but he's the first one that is supernatural. Right, but we'll talk more about that when we get into the issue proper. Also in this episode, we're talking about Tomb of Dracula number four, Werewolf by Night number one, Jack Russell finally getting his own title, and yet another issue of Marvel Team-Up, this one being Marvel Team-Up number four, featuring the uncanny X-Men. Again, seems like we talked about them last issue, last episode. We we did, we did. This time, a little bit more of an actual supernatural threat, so that'll be interesting. Yeah, it kind of makes me think we should have kept John Wilson around. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair. Um, classic X-Men is not my forte, but uh, but I think there's enough other stuff going on in there that, that we'll have plenty to talk about. Yep. All right, so we'll go ahead and go to a quick promo and come back with Marvel Spotlight number five. 
This is Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel shock-absorbing stunt cycle. You can make him do wheelies, backstands, even mid-air somersaults. And for that big jump, here's Evil, up and over that four-foot ditch. Evil Knievel sold separately or with the Evil Knievel stunt cycle from Ideal. And we're back on Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And the first issue we have up today is Marvel Spotlight number five, Ghost Rider. Cover date is August 1972. Writers Roy Thomas and Gary Friedrich. Artist and inker Mike Plug. Letterer John Costa. Editor, of course, Stan Lee. We open on Johnny Blaze, the Ghost Rider riding his motorcycle through the rain-slicked streets of New York City. By chance, he passes a pair of criminals committing murder. Blaze doesn't care what the men are up to and only wants to avoid being seen in his current condition. But the two men worry that Blaze will report them to the police, and so they give chase. After the high-speed chase, Blaze finds himself cornered in a dark alley. Just as the murderers think they have the upper hand, Blaze demonstrates his hellish powers and then escapes on his motorcycle. As the sun rises, the Ghost Rider transforms back into the human, Johnny Blaze. In a moment of reflection, Blaze thinks back to the circumstances of his past that led to his cursed condition. When Johnny was a boy, his father died in a motorcycle accident. Johnny was adopted by Crash Simpson, a stunt rider who headlined his own motorcycle show. Initially, Johnny followed in the footsteps of both his biological and adopted fathers, and took up stunt riding. But when he was 15, his cycle exploded during a practice run. Blaze escaped unharmed, but his adopted mother was caught in the explosion. With her dying breath, she asked Johnny to promise to never ride in the stunt show again. Johnny keeps his word, only riding alone and in secret for his own enjoyment. Eventually, Crash's daughter, Roxanne, catches him riding and takes the opportunity to confess her love for him. The stunt show's big break comes when they are able to book a show at Madison Square Garden, but the news is bittersweet, and Crash reveals that he is dying of cancer. To save his adopted father, Johnny performs an occult ritual to summon Satan, and in exchange for his soul, asks that Crash not be killed by cancer. At the show, Crash plans to break the world's cycle jump record, since he believes it will be his final performance. Crash fails in his attempt, and dies in the resulting accident, fulfilling Satan's vow that Crash would not die of cancer. Enraged, Johnny attempts the same stunt himself and succeeds, breaking the world record. Roxanne, upset over the death of her father and what she sees as Johnny's disrespect in attempting the world record stunt so soon after her father's wreck, says she's leaving Johnny. At that moment, Satan appears to Johnny, prepared to take him to hell. But as Satan's curse begins to take hold, Roxanne returns and, thinking quickly, invokes the purity of her soul to banish the demon. It turns out that she had secretly read the same occult books as Johnny, and so she knew exactly how to stop Satan. Unfortunately, she was not fast enough, and so now, when the sun sets, Johnny burns with fever until his head becomes a flaming skull, and he transforms into the Ghost Rider.
So, I have to say, for a character that I know is so beloved, and, you know, and an issue that spawns what becomes basically a franchise for Marvel, including, what is it, two films now, as well as a TV, TV appearance? Two films, uh, animated appearances, TV appearances, uh, I mean, the character's sort of everywhere. This issue is not that good. No, it's... And not only is it not particularly good, it's fairly derivative. Uh, I mean, it's basically the Werewolf by Night origin, but with a motorcycle. Yes. And instead of the main... The female lead being his sister, like it is in Werewolf by Night, it's a girl that was raised like his sister, but they make out occasionally... Yeah, that's weird and creepy, and I try not to think about that part too much. Yeah, so basically, Johnny and Roxanne have this Barry and Iris thing going on. Yes, they do. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Which, it's weird whenever you watch The Flash, where you have Joe West treating Barry like he's his son, and then he goes make out with his daughter, and it's just like, creepy, creepy, it, creepy. It, yes, creepy. yes. When did uh, just a d- d- deviation real quick? When did they come up with the retcon that um, Barry was raised by Iris and Joe? Was it when was it with Jeff Johns and Flash Rebirth, where it was like, oh, Barry's mother was murdered? Yes, I think that was. I I want to say that was part of the retcon that involved uh, Reverse Flash's time travel. Where it's just like Jeff Johns, what is that, 2006? I guess. Because it would have been, what, right before Flashpoint? You you're, you know better. It's it's freaking, it's, it's the new millennium. It is not the Bronze Age, it's not the Silver Age anymore. You know freaking better. Yeah. And And you could still have Joe West as a mentor figure without making the rest of it so creepy. But, as we see here in Ghost Rider, it's creepy. Yeah. Well, and here, they sort of breeze by it by just killing off the father figure. <laughs> and I'm sure... And I'm sure that never comes up again. <laughs> um, actually, I think it does. Um, I think it comes up quite a bit more in the future, but I, I, I won't go into spoilers and my vague right. understandings. Um, there's there's another uh, full disclosure, but yeah, there is another great Ghost Rider podcast out there called Inner Demons, uh, hosted by my pal Chris Munn and his co-host Brian Biggie, and they have talked about this issue as well as subsequent issues, but this is my first time actually reading this issue so right. my recollection is kind of fuzzy. Well, and and here's the thing. Um I don't I haven't read a lot of these early Ghost Rider appearances. Um this is sort of a first for me going through some of these. Um but if this is an indication, then my impression is that Ghost Rider doesn't really get good until the 80s and 90s. Right. I think I think he's coasting by on the very strong visual which is fantastic. I mean, the art is the reason to look at this book. Like, like the the plot is standard, but the art, especially the transformation sequences and the 
all of the stuff with uh, Ghost Rider on the bike. Like, it all looks really cool. Yeah, and of course, artist here is Mike Pluke, who we've seen a lot yeah. of from Werewolf by Night. Uh, right, and we get similar sort of transformation sequences here done in sort of successive panels. Yeah, um, and he, we always get these fantastic Mike Plug psychedelic montages, which he's he's just fantastic at. Right. The way he arranges materials, and yeah, those transformations are really good. But there's a criticism I'll put forth here. Johnny Blaze and Jack Russell look a lot alike, except one is blonde and one has red hair. And that really doesn't help with the fact like the that adds to the comparison of the two like ghost rider feels like an echo of that other better told story right and i mean there's a someone posted the panel from page 13 where he's reading the book and finding out about satan right uh and i just they just post that one panel because it's a fairly humorous panel but i thought that was jack russell when i saw that panel out of context. I mean, that that could easily have been him flipping through a book about the Darkhold or something. Yeah. Which could easily happen. And uh, also, the, the, the thing that stood out to me on that page is the panel right after that one when he is performing the ritual. And, I'm sorry, has he painted a pentagram on his chest? He has. Oh, good. Good. Either that or <laughs> he's doing his Winter Soldier cosplay. That, that or... Son of Satan. True. Who, who, who we'll get to eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like Mike Plug's artwork. Oh, all the stuff with, like, the deal with the devil on the next page is just fantastic art. Yeah. Although... I mean, it, it's total, like, heavy metal album cover art, but it's awesome. And I think we're going to talk about this when we get to the Werewolf by Night issue... I think with him starting to get more work because of the added Marvel horror lines, his artwork does suffer. Mm. Yeah, there's there's less background detail, I think. Yeah. Like uh, there's, I mean, the the foregrounded figures are still mostly very good, um, and the use of color and and perspective is really cool. But I do feel like there's less overall detail. Yeah. All right, let's get into the story itself. Roxanne and her dad are assholes. <laughs> the, yes, the whole family, really. Where it's like, um, you were right there when your dying wife, your dying mother, made him promise that he wouldn't take part in the show. And not once, but twice, Roxanne gets mad at Johnny Blaze about something he is doing for secretly selfless reasons only to later come back and say, I always suspected you were doing it for a selfless reason. Yeah. And it's like, but then why were you mad at him the first time? Yeah. Or why, yeah. Why are you putting him through a psychological torture? Which is what, what's, what's going on here? You, you are, you are psychologically torturing this guy when you really knew all along he had selfless reasons behind it. Right. You are a toxic relationship, lady. I mean, it, it's not healthy. And, and now he's apparently, like, bound to her because proximity to her soul is all that's keeping him from becoming a demon. Yeah. And it's just like... And then, speaking of weird reasons... Okay. I can kind of get 
why she got mad at him after he completed a stunt after her father just died in front of him. Yes. Why yes. did you feel the need to complete that stunt? Right. Ex ex except to show that you're a better motorcyclist. Right. That's all that accomplishes. Nobody would blame you. No, no audience member would blame you. Really, no realistic show would continue on after one of the performers has just died in a fireball. No, like, where are the paramedics? Why are people not being evacuated? Right. Like, why, why have the police not shut the show down? But I guess it's the, the show must go on. No. Somebody has died on stage in front of the whole audience. People are going through therapy. You, right. You know there are children in the audience, because Evil Knievel is big at this time, so yeah. And and also, I'm sorry, but Satan twirling his mustache and be, metaphorically and being like, well, I promised he wouldn't die of cancer. Is, <laughs> it's the most O. Henry Twilight Zone Tales from the Crypt thing that I can possibly imagine. Yeah, it's... Cliche like that, it's a total like monkey paw moment, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I get that it, it gets us where the story needs to go, but it just feels very cliche. In fact, in in a in a way that the other horror comics up to this point that we've looked at, for the most part, the big ones, Werewolf by Night, Tomb of Dracula, they are playing with concepts and stories that feel familiar, but in a way that feels like homage it, it, in a fresh way whereas this feels cliche i would actually make the argument that the werewolf by night origin issue is better than this issue oh absolutely a hundred percent because this is just a retread it is it's the same story but with satan and motorcycles which i i i can't get into the motorcycle stuff i've never been a motorcycle guy i mean I guess I just haven't lost enough hair yet. I mean, I, in in theory, like in in entertainment purposes, sure, I can get behind the motorcycles. Ghost Rider, just as a visual, looks cool. Yeah. Um, I think he looks cooler once we get to the '80s and '90s version, but that's another discussion to have later. But but the Ghost Rider concept is visually engaging. It's just. At this point, they haven't found a story to tell with him. No. And... And they also haven't really established anything in terms of what his deal really is. I mean, we know where he came from, but because of the flashback structure of the issue, like, we don't really know what he, as Ghost Rider, can really do or what he really intends to do. Although, I will give it credit, I think the rules are a little bit more solid than what we've seen in Werewolf by Night, where I'm still not completely sure, does Jack Russell turn into a werewolf every night, or is it just when the moon is full, or...? It is... I, I actually think I've figured this out. I think it is when the moon is full, which is effectively like a three-day range. Okay. <clears throat> like, it is the night before the moon is fullest the night of the actual full moon and the night immediately after. Okay. I believe, and unless they change the rules on me going forward, looking back at the other issues, that's the best I can figure out. And Th that you've got like a, a three or four day window where he's going to be a werewolf. And that would never happen in a Marvel comic book. 
<laughs> so, um, speaking of Roxanne changing the rules, uh, we get this part in here where he's about to transform into a demon, and right. she comes in and makes Satan depart with her love of him, and because she's been reading his occult books, and my note here is, oh, she found his D&D manuals. I mean, basically, yeah. I'm starting to see why the satanic panic happened in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> you got kids here reading D&D manuals, making deals with demons. Jack Chick was right. And nobody at any point in this comic is stopping to ask, where did Johnny Blaze get those books? No. At least in Werewolf by Night, it's explained that his father was a sorcerer. Right, right. Here, he's just some nobody motorcycle mechanic. I think he he steals them from libraries they they visit when they are touring across the country. <laughs> like, I, I, I really just want a single issue where, just on a page, Doctor Strange shows up and is like, so I need to confiscate those. It's like, hmm, uh, Beatrice, where did that book that was bound in human flesh and inked in blood go? <laughs> oh, some traveling carnies checked it out. Um, that, but speaking of that same page where Roxanne rushes in at the end, uh, the top left panel of the page is one of my favorite single images of the Ghost Rider transformation in the whole book. The I believe in Jesus pose? Yeah, well, where he's got his head back and he's not entirely turned to a skull yet, but he's on fire, and the eyes of Satan are behind him. Like, it's cool. That is, that is cool. That is kind of cool. Again, total, like, heavy metal album cover art, but in a cool way. Yeah, and they point out in Marvel Database that there are a lot of retcons to happen with this issue. Where... Oh, yeah. Well, it, it's still not entirely clear which demon he really made the deal with. Um, right now, he's just called Satan. I think for a while, they're going to decide it's Mephisto. But then for a while, they're going to go back to Satan, but not the same Satan that's the father of uh, Son of Satan. Yep. It, it, it gets complicated. Yeah. But we'll get to those changes when we come to them. Right now, it's Satan. Yes. Although I will give them credit, it is a very heavy heavy metal Satan, which, oh, yeah. which is a perfect yeah. time. It isn't the twirly mustache goatee Satan we might have seen in, like, say, a Silver Age comic. Yeah, no, this is, like, muscles and horns and, uh, again, heavy metal cover. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, like, like, a Danzig album or something. Did you like this issue? <sighs> I wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to too, and I know, I know we're gonna have a lot of listeners who are big Ghost Rider fans, and I know they're gonna come down on us for not liking this issue. But even for somebody like me who is acclimated to Bronze Age comics and what to expect from them, and even the work of Mike Klug, this is not the greatest first issue. Ever. No, no. I mean, I, I, I dig the art. I, I was here for the art, but the story, on the one hand, I, I think part of the problem is it's familiar on two fronts. It's familiar because it's basically 
the same as Werewolf by Night, but it's also familiar in that it has been retold a bunch with this character. And, and, and in this case, and because it's an origin story, the thing with Marvel Origins is they get retold a bunch. And, and in this particular case, I think some of the retellings are better. Yeah. There are instances where the original origin is the one to go back to because it's classic. Spider-Man's a good example of that. But here, this one, they still haven't figured things out, and I think later on, going back to the origin, they were able to flesh it out in a way that made it fit with the rest of the continuity. And I think part of that is who writes this issue. It's, it's really Gary Friedrich who yeah. writes this issue, and I don't think... Is Gary Friedrich an, a writer? Um, that's... I'm trying to think of what his other credits have been. Um, he is a writer. Uh, he did some Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. Um, and, and we haven't gotten to it yet, but he will also be writing some of Monster of Frankenstein. Okay. This is the first thing I've seen from him. And... He, he got his start at Charlton, looks like. Okay. I like Charlton um, Comics. Under recommendation of Roy Thomas. And he wrote a bunch of Blue Beetle issues, which, you know, I love the Charlton Blue Beetle. Yeah, yeah. And he did some westerns. for. He got his start with Marvel doing westerns. Okay, so this isn't my first thing that I've read by him. Because I know I know I own those Blue Beetle issues. Some of and them. And in fact, in the Friedrich, issue. Friedrich wrote the Western Ghost Rider. Okay. Uh, the which eventually became known as Phantom Rider, which we mentioned. I suggested before we did the summary that there was another Ghost Rider character in Marvel. It was a Western character, vaguely supernatural-ish, but not really. Um, and and. It looks like the co-creator of and, and writer of the '70s Ghost Rider also worked on that earlier version. And eventually, they do retcon it that the Phantom Rider, who I know most from his appearances in Avengers West Coast, was a Ghost Rider as well. I think so. They they end up tying. They basically do what. DC did with Alan Scott, the Golden Age Green Lantern. They, they figured out a way to retroactively link him to the other characters who had that name. But I think we'll get to all those retcons when we get to them. Right, right. I think for right now, we're done with Ghost Rider. We'll see how he turns out next episode. Yeah, the, we're certainly not done with him by far. No, in fact, there are points in this podcast where we'll basically become a Ghost Rider podcast. I hope it gets better at that point. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, we we will cross that bridge when we get to it. All right. We'll be right back with Tomb of Dracula number four, Through a Mirror Darkly. If your idea of a fun date is attractive-looking girls with fangs, join us Saturday afternoon at 2 for The Vampire Lovers. Take a look at them right now. Is she lovely? I know you'd like her, Attacking this fine gray-haired gentleman here who's writing a name in the dirt. What name is he writing? Joe Piscopo. <laughs> He's a big fan. He would have written Eddie Murphy, but he wanted more money. 
<laughs> yes, you'll scream. It's the Vampire Lovers, a scream, Saturday afternoon at 2. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And now we're going to talk about Tomb of Dracula number 4, Through a Mirror Darkly. Cover date on this issue is September 1972. Writer is Archie Goodwin. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker is Tom Palmer. Litter is John Costanza. Editor, Roy Thomas. The issue begins where the last one left off, with Dracula being allowed to enter the study of the aged actress Elsa Strangeway. Strangeway explains her willingness to allow the Lord of Vampires to enter her home by explaining that she wishes to make a bargain with him. Believing that it will mean a return to her youthful beauty, Strangeway wants the Count to make her into one of the undead, and in exchange, she will give him one of the strange artifacts from her cult collection, the Dark Mirror. Intrigued by the offer, Dracula agrees, but not before Strangeway's butler arrives and tries to defend his mistress from the sinister intruder feeding on her neck. Dracula makes quick work of the man's servant who awakens the next day to tell his story to this book's other stars, Dracula's descendant, Frank Drake, and the vampire hunters Rachel Van Helsing and Taj. That evening, Elsa Strangeway wakes from a coffin in Dracula's hideaway with a chill that reaches her very bones and an all-consuming hunger for blood. Before, her allow, before he'll allow her to hunt, however, Dracula forces her to tell him more of the dark mirror. Strangeway explains that a mystical artifact was created centuries ago by demons as a portal through time and would allow Dracula to travel back in time to an era before his century-long sleep. Slightly later, Frank, Rachel, and Taj ambush Dracula's servant Cliff at Dracula's hideaway and Rachel decides to wait behind for the vampire's return. While Frank and Taj go to Strangeway's house to intercept the Count, who has gone after the mirror. After feeding on a young couple, Elsa Strangeway returns to Dracula's hideaway to find a cross in her coffin, a tied-up cliff, and a crossbow-wielding Rachel Van Helsing waiting for her. Strangeway curses Van Helsing for trying to destroy her when she has just regained her youth and beauty, only to realize that vampirism doesn't quite work like that. While a vampire may de-age after feeding, they will only de-age to the age they were when they returned, meaning Elsa is still the old woman that she was before, but now forever. Realizing that Dracula has tricked her, and the monster she has become, she welcomes Rachel's steel-tipped crossbow bolt. Meanwhile, Dracula is trapped in a strangeway mansion by Frank Taj and Scotland Yard with specially modified crucifix casting flashlights. Attempting to escape, Dracula attempts escaping into the past through the mirror, but is tackled by the mute Man Mountain Taj as they go through the mirror together, unaware of the trick that the parted Elsa Strangeway has played on the Count. For the mirror is only a gateway to the past if there is one of its matching number waiting there for you. Without it, you will be doomed to the dimension of the demons who made the mirror. Rachel Van Helsing and Frank arrive too late to save their friend as the mirror seals behind them. So, um, 
I will say, for a book that w is consistently great, which this book is, Tomb of Dracula is consistently great. I, throughout the I would say run. of the of the ongoing characters and titles that we have looked at so far, this is probably the one that is the most consistently good. Yes, but this is a weak issue. Right. I mean, it, it feels like filler. Yeah, and when you look at the cover for it, it looks like it's going to be really good. And with the setup, it looks like it's going to be really good. Because the cover proclaims the Bride of Dracula. But as we see in the comic, it, she's hardly the Bride of Dracula. Right, right. She's the dupe of Dracula. Right, and they never even really appear together as vampires except that one awakening scene. Yeah, but here it's like, uh, that's right, my friends, flee this way or that. Either way, the vampires feast, which they don't have a feasting scene together. No, and, and in fact, what actually happens in the comic is the other way around. Like, Dracula spends this, the back half of the issue running from them. And that's not, who, that's not who's running away, by the way. That's the young couple right. from the village. Right, right. The, the, the fodder people. Right, but but it just seems it's it's funny that what actually is happening is sort of the opposite of what is shown on the cover. Yeah, I think what makes what saves this issue is the fact that you have strong characters, especially yes. in Rachel Van Helsing and Taj, who are quickly becoming favorite characters of mine. Right. Um, Cliff, who you love to hate. Cliff has a very punchable face. As, and it gets punched here, which is extremely yes. satisfying. <laughs> You're like, hey, Cliff's been punched. I got a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Um, and Dracula, of course. Right. And, and they do such a good job of, like, writing him in a way that feels very much Bram Stoker's Dracula, but also still fits into this very sort of heightened Marvel world. Right. And I think... I think one of the biggest strengths... Well, really, the big strength this book has going for it right now is Gene Colan on art. Absolutely. Absolutely. His art just immediately sets the tone. You know, okay, this is what I'm here for. Yes. And it's really strong. And I think... Later on, from what I understand, once we get Marv Wolfman on the title, you've got writer and artist in perfect symmetry, and it's just like, wow. Yeah, yeah, and um, the uh, there, I'm trying to find it now. There's there there was a bit one of the transformations uh, from human to well, all of them really, just the way. You get the human forms, but still bits of bat characteristics, like the wings still folding up or whatever. They always just look really cool. Yeah, I think it's on 19 where she's transforming from a bat to a human for the first time, and she finds the couple. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, music, the Friday night dance in the town hall. Elsa Strangeway, who is a stalker. Yeah, that's that's it, and it's it's really good where you have that transformation, and she's touching down with human legs, but her arms are still bat wings. It's really, 
really strong and his shadow work is so good if you look down at the bottom um, left panel where she's stalking the couple from the shadows the shadow work there is just so strong yeah I mean we've um, talked about how much we like Mike Plug's uh, transformation shots but I think the transformation shots there are very much on display there's a big show of them but the transformations you see here, Gene Colin just has this much more subtle hand, which is really just beautiful. And you also get it on uh, page, is it page 15 maybe? With Dracula transforming, where the bat wings are becoming his cloak in the middle panel. Okay, I, I don't think it's 15 on mine. Okay. Oh, I see um, it, yeah, okay. 20, the very top of the page. 21 on mine. Copy. 21 sorry uh i may have written down the wrong number but um but yeah because first you have the bat against the full moon and then as he transforms the bat wings are becoming the sort of folds of his cape yeah and it's just it's got a really cool look yeah and i know that when i uh read it i mean guys if you've not done so already find a way to read these issues uh they are the art rick is just consistently good I haven't really looked to see how it looks with modern recoloring. I, I just... If I were to buy it, I would think I'd want it with the Omnibuses where they put in the modern modern coloring, the 3D coloring. Right. Because I think it would look good there. I think it would look terrible with the blotchy kind of recoloring I've talked about before on the show that I really hate. Right. Um, but yeah, really, really consistent with the art. The, and and we've sort of touched on this, but the the character of uh, Ilsa is sort of a throwaway character. Like we we don't. I mean, she's there's this suggestion early on. Like I, I was thinking, okay, well maybe we're getting another sort of secondary villain here, who's sort of the the Carmilla figure, you know, the 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 Countess of Bathory type vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we don't. Like, they, they sort of give up on that story after this one issue. Yeah, and I, I was really excited about what we might see from her. But you're right, they kind of just... Oh, here's a story. It happened. It, it Like like you said, it feels kind of like filler. Where it's like, ah, oh, here's a great setup for the next issue. What do you want to do with the next issue? Eh, just a one and done, I guess. Although, I will say, talking of... Uh, Speaking of, of uh, setups for the next issue, Dracula venturing into an alien Lovecraftian hellscape is a pretty great setup. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's a really good setup. But I think with... I think of Ilsa, or is it Elsa? Ilsa? It's with an I. I've been, I've been reading it as Ilsa. Okay, Ilsa, strange way. I feel like, yeah, you had the potential there for another good secondary um, villain like what we had with Genie um, early on in the book. Uh, the previous, well, I guess three issues or so. Where you, or really, she was only, was she only around for two issues? I think two, yeah. That sounds right. Wow. Sorry, she was su- such, such a strong character that I felt she was around for longer. Um, but yeah, where, you know, we have the character of Genie, this beloved love interest who very tragically just transformed by Dracula and then, God, the next issue dies tragically. But 
they milk it so well. Right, and right. We talk, and we talk about a time. Her, her death is so, so tragic. Yeah. And so harrowing. And, and Ilsa had potential for something like that because you've got this sort of bitter sunset boulevard by way of the Countess of Bathory kind of character. Yeah. And they don't really do anything with it. No. She kind of realizes, oh, I'm not young and hot. Stake me. Right, right. I feel like there more could have been done with a vampire character who's angry at Dracula. Yeah. But at the same time, is feeding, so the vampire hunters had to stop her. Right. And I think, that, and like maybe trying alternate methods to regain her youth. Like, oh, that bathing and blood thing. I heard about that. Let's try that. Right, right. And she has this massive occult collection at her disposal. Exactly, like, which I would like to see more of some of those artifacts, you know. Speaking of which, what what do you think of of this uh, black mirror uh, situation we've got going on? You mean the dark mirror? Sorry, the dark mirror. Yeah, quick to point out, this is called the dark mirror, not black mirror. Although there is a black mirror in Marvel. Is it the same mirror? I don't know. It has the same properties. So it's probably the same mirror. Because there is, uh, later on, Doctor Strange uses something called the Black Mirror to travel through dimensions, times, and realities. So it's either one of the one of the companion mirrors to this one, or the same mirror. Right. Right. But, okay, I, I have questions about the rules for this mirror. If, if, you're, if you're traveling through time with it, and you have to travel to a time where there is a companion mirror to it. Mm-hmm. Through the principles of t- how time works, object permanency works, wouldn't there always be a companion mirror to this mirror? You would think. I mean, that, that, I, I, that makes sense to me. As long as the mirror has been crafted already, there would always be a companion because wouldn't you, if you're traveling through time, wouldn't you be traveling to the same damn mirror, but then a different time? Right. As long as you're not moving through space as well. Exactly. Like you'd go to wherever the mirror is in another time period, which right. I don't see the problem with that. Right. Why would that be a problem? Unless the suggestion is that it can be a one-way... If you go to a place that does not have a mirror, it can take you somewhere, but if there's not one there, you can't get back. But once the mirror has been constructed, the mirror will always be there. Right. I mean... Yeah, I, I don't know. If the mirror... Let, let's just, just, just put out a wild number. If the mirror was constructed in 1600, you can go to any point in time after 1600 because the mirror is there even if it's in a broom closet somewhere you can go to the broom closet it's like you remember the doctor who episode girl in the fireplace right yeah yeah as long as the fireplace is there you can go to that period yeah there's no reason that you have to have a separate companion piece mirror to this one if you're time traveling now if it's like 
like you said, if it's traveling across space where it's like a Stargate situation, and I apologize to Stargate fans out there, I'm not, but <laughs> I'm, I've, I've not even seen the movie. I've seen like an episode or two of the TV show. I'm not an expert. But I understand there has to be a companion to that one so you can travel across space. That, right. That makes sense. That, that's why it's a gate, is that there's an opening on each side. Exactly. But with time travel, wouldn't the mirror itself be its own companion opening? I would think so. It doesn't make... The, the trap she's setting here, the, the trap that Elsa Strangeway is setting here makes no damn sense. And and it's possible we'll get more exposition on this in the next issue. Yes. I'm, I'm hoping we do. Yeah, because otherwise my head might explode. But um, but yeah. As an aside, I found it. Um, Doctor Strange, Volume Two, Number Forty Two, in nineteen eighty. Um, put a uh, put a pen in that one because we will be getting to that one, I imagine. Um, because it is called the Black Mirror, and seems to feature one of the companion mirrors. Um, and what what got my attention though, um. It's written by Chris Claremont, uh, which makes sense. But you know who penciled that issue? Mike Plute. No, no, no. Um, Gene Colan? Gene Colan. Ooh. So he, he did both Dracula's Dark Mirror and Doctor Strange's Black Mirror. Yeah, and we really need to figure out when we're going to start talking about Doctor Strange on this podcast. At what point does it cross into the realm of, of horror? yeah. And I don't know about that issue, actually, now that I'm looking at the summary. I mean, it depends on whether we want to sort of see how closely it relates to the the artifact that's in this Dracula issue, which, you know, ten years after the fact, who knows? Which, lovely listeners, what do you think? When do we want to talk about Doctor Strange as part of the Marvel Horror line? Should we have been talking about Doctor Strange already up to this point? Uh, Let us know what you think. I mean, we at least will be talking about the issue where Doctor Strange fights Dracula. Well, yeah, because <laughs> the Darkhold and all that fun stuff feature pretty prominently, I think. Right, right. But, but yeah, I mean, go, going back to the issue itself, uh, it's fine. It's, it's good. It's as good as you would sort of baseline expect a Tomb of Dracula issue to be, but it's not the best we've read so far. Although I will say it may be the best in this episode. That's that's fair. Um, because even mediocre Tomb of Dracula is better than most other comics. Yeah. I have to, I have to agree with that. Just, again, as with Ghost Rider, my favorite part was the art. Yeah. There was a lot of potential there, and I don't think the potential that was set up with last issue is really used. Right, and I feel like where it's going could be very interesting. The setup for the next issue has me interested. Which, it'll be interesting to see if it's more underutilization. Right. Like, is it yet another instance of set up an interesting premise, but then do something completely different? Yeah, which... I think we're actually going to see more of with our next issue we're going to talk about, uh, which is Werewolf by Night, number one, Eye of the Beholder, um, right after this break, unless you have something else to add. No, I think we're good. Uh, In just a minute, Werewolf by Night. It's late at night. 
You're safe and warm in bed. You're watching TV. You're alone. You hear a strange noise. The cat, the dog, the wind. How do you know it's not a werewolf? Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Next issue we're going to talk about this episode is Werewolf by Night number one, Eye of the Beholder. Cover date on this one is September 1972. Writer is Jerry Conway. Artist is Mike Plug. Inker is Frank Caramonte. Letter is John Costanza. Editor is Roy Thomas. Following the events of his previous appearance in Marvel Spotlight number four, the werewolf has been turned to stone by the mutant Marlene Blackgar. But as the sun rises, the shape-shifting properties of his curse turn him back to flesh and blood as he transforms into Jack Russell. Buck Cowan finds Jack, and the two escape with the Darkhold. Jack calls his sister Lissa to check in, and hearing concern in her voice, tells her to come to Buck's place to meet him. Unbeknownst to Jack, Lissa is being manipulated by their stepfather on behalf of Marlene and her father. She and Strug ambush Jack and Buck, just as the moon begins to rise. Jack runs away from the house, even though Buck and Lissa are now prisoners. He transforms, and as the werewolf, he circles back to fight Strug. During the fight, Marlene fires her gun at the werewolf, but hits Strug by mistake. Marlene attempts to use her powers on the werewolf again, but he is standing in front of a mirror. As he jumps out of the way, Marlene and her father are turned to stone due to her reflection. The werewolf briefly encounters Lyssa before running into the woods to wait out the night, and when Jack returns, she's in no mood to talk about what happened. Finally, Jack, his sister, and Buck visit the Santa Monica Art Museum, where Buck has donated the stone forms of Marlene and Buck. And that seems very brief, but that is honestly all that happens in this issue. Not a lot happens in this issue. No, it's pretty sparse. Um, and really, as with the, the Dracula issue, takes a pretty interesting cliffhanger and just sort of ignores it. I kind of feel like if this wasn't Werewolf by Night number one, that if this was... Marvel Spotlight number five, or was it five? Yeah, if this was if yeah, this yeah. was Marvel Spotlight number five instead of the Ghost Rider issue, this would have been just like a whole issue of him as a statue and his struggles and characters worrying about him and what's he's what's going on, and then finally mm-hmm. like this thing at the end where he breaks free, and now shit's about to go down. Or even something where like. Something with the dark hold freeing him, or so, you know, something more than just the sun comes up. Right. This idea that he transforms inside the statue form, so now he's free. Right. I, I can understand. Well, I think okay. So I think the idea is it it has to do with the way her mutant powers work. That she transformed the wolf into stone, but the wolf is on some level a different personality than Jack. And so when 
the wolf ceases to exist and Jack comes back into being, her power is no longer keeping him a statue. Which I don't quite buy because I think what have been much more interesting is like if he breaks free of the wolf statue, kind of like the scene at the end of Ghostbusters mm-hmm. where they have to break out of the dog statues. I think that, that right. would have been a much more interesting visual where it's kind of like Jack breaking free of this werewolf statue shell. I think that would have been right. much cooler. And again, it just... It, it feels like those old movie serials where the cliffhanger makes you think, oh, shit, the hero's doomed. And then the, the first, like, three pages of the next issue, uh, not really. Right, absolutely. It, ju- it just feels wasted. They could have done so much more of him being stuck in statue form. The effects of, you know, his sister worrying about him, his stepfather being mad at him because his sister is worried, Buck coming to this island to look for him, encountering the mutants, surviving on his own, because God damn it, Buck Cohen's awesome. And, right. And just, there, but of course, it's Werewolf by Night number one, so... You gotta have the werewolf. You gotta have the werewolf, he's gotta be doing stuff, and it just, it, it feels like another, it feels like the story would have benefited a lot more from another issue of... Marvel Spotlight. Right. So that so that you could launch the number one unencumbered by the need to resolve a plot line from the previous issue. Exactly. Which would have been stronger, I think. Right. Also, the ending is kind of morbid, isn't it? It's incredibly morbid. It, it, it's got this sort of comic, campy kind of... Roger Corman bucket of blood kind of thing going for it with the statue that's not really a statue. But you kind of ex- but you kind of expect that like Star Trek freeze frame da 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 music over it. Oh yeah, they're they're all but winking at the the audience in that last panel. But Cohen is winking at the audience in that last panel. <laughs> he, 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 he's extensively <laughs> winking at Jack and his sister. Really, he's winking at the audience. Oh yeah, yeah. That that's a total that, and and that expression. It reminds me of the old uh, Superman cartoons where someone would comment on Superman and Clark never being in the same place, and it would end on the close up of Clark like winking at the camera. Yep, that is a Superman wink. You're right. But you're right. It is an incredibly morbid ending I mean I guess Buck was able to dispose of the bodies so there would be no questions yeah except for you know the poor mutant guy right Um, poor mutant guy Strug which I'll say this issue is weak except for the part with Strug where Strug and the werewolf are struggling um, and Strug does not want to fight. Right. Medusa Lady, I can't remember her name right now. That's uh, Marlene. Marlene fires a shot at both of them 
struggling, and Strug's like, you didn't need the shoot. Strug would have stopped him. Strug would have done what he asked. Hasn't Strug always done what Miss asked? Even when it hurt him, Strug tried. Even against him, against the one who freed Strug, Strug tried, didn't he? Hasn't Strug always tried? And then Strug dies. And Merlin, I mean, like, that's the oh most. God. It's the most emotionally resonant moment in the issue. It's true. Where the this is Werewolf by Night's big issue, big first issue. Right. He's taking center stage. He's finally the headlining title of his own book. And it feels like this should have been called Strug, number one. It, it's, it doesn't feel like a first issue. And I know technically he's had four other issues by now. Yeah. But I feel like a number one issue ought to have a number one caliber story. And this isn't it. No, it isn't. This isn't a, this isn't an ama- because you demanded it amazing first issue sort of story. This right. is a horrible jumping on point. Yes, yes it is. Um it, and I think it, as we said, it because it's it feels obligated to try and resolve this cliffhanger that it really has no interest in resolving. No. It does and like I said, I and we get the obligatory appearance from uh, the stepfather, um, right? Which is both really bizarre and only serves to remind us what a jerk he is. Yes, it's basically saying, "Okay, this is the number one issue. We should probably introduce you to this person. Who's supposed to be a major character in the story. Um, he's an asshole. Carry on." Right, and it's just like. Oh, God. And And I'm sorry, but for the stepfather to say, Jack's gotten a little big for himself lately. It's time he was taught a lesson in self-control. And Liza, you're going with them. (laughs) Like, sure, send your teenage daughter off with this creepy woman, her paraplegic father, and their obvious mutant manservant. Right. What the hell, man? It's weird. It's just really weird. I, I like to think I'm um, a bit more protective of my stepdaughter than this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I the Strug stuff is good. The visuals are consistent and good. You know, like that 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 Plug art continues to impress. Um, I, I I'm here for the the Jack Buck bromance right uh, there's the there's this panel um what page is this i guess it's page eight maybe where after he's rescued jack from the island they're just kind of hanging out at buck's apartment and i'm just kind of like yeah can i just have a book where um jack and buck have gay adventures in the 70s <laughs> both definitions of the word gay there Right. It's just it seems like it's this cute May December romance. They he's this a uh, grizzled reporter type. He's this idiotic eighteen year old. <laughs> but even the stuff where they're like sneaking through um the the uh mansion together, you know? Like the stuff with them just is kinda of fun. Yeah. 
And I I have a bad feeling of what's going to happen to Buck Cohen. Yeah. Because of what kind of book this is, I just I have a bad feeling about it. And it's a shame because he's the real goddamn star of this book. I feel like fun supporting characters are not long for this world in Marvel horror comics. No, and Buck Cohen's really fun. <laughs> Buck. Yeah. I, I'm just gonna t- get a T-shirt that says Team Buck. <laughs> <laughs> and no one will know what that refers to. <laughs> I would get some questions. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, is there anything else to really say about this one? Again, great art, um, but middling story. Just nothing happens. Although I will kind of say, I think... And it it doesn't... Here's the thing. It's a number one that doesn't set up for a number two. No. And I think... And I, I will say it's good art, but I do think Mike Plug's artwork suffers a bit with this issue. And I'm wondering if it's because he was working on Ghost Rider at the same time. Yeah. Where his work, like his figure work here, is not as good as his work from the previous issue, I don't think. Right. Um, Also, just a fun side note. Um, If you happen to find, either in the original or as a scan, the actual, like, single issue of Werewolf by Night number one... Um, Stan's soapbox in that issue is the soapbox that announces Roy Thomas promoted to editor. Is it? Hold on. Let me go, let me yeah. go back to that. But yeah, like toward the bottom of the first column, he announces, uh, Stan announces that rascally Roy Thomas has been promoted to editor. He does. The, the, it's the end of an era. A- end yeah. of Stan is editor-in-chief. I mean, he'll always be editor emeritus, really, but... Wow. Yeah, so so we we have the changing of the guard in this issue. And another stray observation for the story, I just want to um, point out. I kind of like how Jack hides the Darkhold in a box of cereal. Oh yeah, that that's that's pretty great. And my my note here is, oh man, I never get good prices like that in cereal boxes anymore. <laughs> Um, now I've got to collect, like, 20 boxes and send it in for a whistle. <laughs> um, although it's it's a box of cornflakes. Did cornflakes ever have good prizes? No, it's always Captain Crunch, man. The more sugar, yeah, the better yeah. prize. <laughs> it's a weak showing for a first issue. That's that's yeah, a big takeaway from it, this. It, it's, it's a first issue that feels like a fifth issue. Which, again, makes sense given the fact that this is the fifth issue we've talked about. But it doesn't feel like something that's designed to bring in new readers. No. Or or to hook anyone for an ongoing. No. And you're like, oh, so it's going to be cute Superman-type adventures based on this ending. Right. Oh. <sighs> So, I don't know. It's it I am I honestly have no idea what to expect from the next issue. No. There's no setup whatsoever. Um although we do know to, what to expect from the next issue we're talking about, and that's Spider-Man. Because it's another issue of Marvel Team-Up featuring Spider-Man 
and then the X-Men. We'll be right back. Tired of the same old fun and games? Welcome to Spider-Man X-Men to the video game ride of your lives. Wolverine, Spider-Man, Gambit, Cyclops. Now on Genesis, the ultimate video game team. Are we having fun yet? And we're back on Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And our fourth and final issue today is Marvel Team-Up number four, and then the X-Men. Cover date is September 1972. Writer Jerry Conway, artist Gil Kane, inkers Steve Mitchell, Frank Giacoya, and John Romita. Uh, letterer is John Costanza, and editor is Roy Thomas. Plagued by dreams of Morbius and becoming even iller, Peter Parker decides to resume his hunt for Michael Morbius after his latest nightmare rouses his roommate, Harry Osborne. Deciding to seek out Hans Jorgensen once more to see if there are any leads, Spider-Man arrives just after Jorgensen is kidnapped by Morbius himself. When Spider-Man is spotted by the landlady, Spider-Man is blamed for the scientist kidnapping. When news of Jorgensen's supposed kidnapping by the wall crawler reaches Charles Xavier, an old colleague of Jorgensen, he once more summons his charges, the X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, and Iceman all answer his summons. However, the Beast refuses to join, having a mission of his own to accomplish. Professor X sends the X-Men out into New York City to track down Spider-Man. When they find the wall crawler, a battle ensues, ending with Spider-Man being overpowered by the X-Men and restrained by Marvel Girl. Learning via Psy Probe that Morbius kidnapped Jorgensen, Xavier orders the X-Men to bring the now comatose Spider-Man back to the X-Mansion for further probing and to study Jorgensen's notes. There they learn that Spider-Man will soon die due to a toxin used to cure him of four additional arms that he gained during his last encounter with Morbius. They also learn that Jorgensen was working on a cure which could be utilized by Morbius's blood. In order to rescue his friends and save Spider-Man, Professor X sends the X-Men out to capture Morbius. After a lengthy battle, the X-Men manage to defeat Morbius and rescue Jorgensen. Afterwards, Jorgensen is able to cure Spider-Man, who thanks the X-Men before leaving them to deal with Morbius. And so, this was, uh, this was an issue. It certainly was an issue. Um, and I feel like we're again, saying that a lot, about a lot of the issues <laughs> in this episode. But the... Granted, I will say, I think this is a better issue than the Marvel team-up with Human Torch. Right, and I, I have to agree with that. And that's sad for me, because I usually love Human Torch, Spider-Man team-ups, but they were a-holes in the entire thing. Right. Although, to be fair, Spider-Man is still an a-hole in this. <laughs> He is, he is, um, but he's also feverish the whole time, which might excuse a little bit of it. But then what's his excuse the rest of the time? Right, right. If, if you, anytime we see Spider-Man around this era, he's always being a butthole to Gwen, Harry, Mary Jane, Robbie Robertson... I think Luke right. Pers- I mean, it's it's funny how, for all of the great power, great responsibility stuff, there is also a whole lot of great selfishness. Exactly. 
And I think... I don't think we, this really gets called out until, like, the Dan Slot years. Right. Where people are kind of pointing out, okay, yeah, you've got this double life thing, but you also have a responsibility to your friends, and you're kind of a dick, Peter. Yeah. Again, not being the biggest X-Men guy, um, I don't have that much familiarity with the, the classic era of the X-Men, which this is sort of on the tail end of, I guess. Right. This is the era where Beast has kind of gone off and done his own thing um, and is headlining Amazing Adventure at the time. Right. Do the X-Men even have their own title at this point? No. They're all reprints. Right. So so all they're doing is doing these guest shots in other people's books. Exactly. Uh, and Beast is off and becoming a solo star in Amazing Adventure, where he's... It's... The way the cover setup is, it's Amazing Adventure starring The Beast. So, you know, it's not really his own title, but at the same right. time, it is his own title because Beast is the first thing you really see. Sort, sort of like the uh, Strange Tales with Doctor Strange, where for a long time that wasn't really his book, but he was almost always the headlining attraction. Exactly. And in uh, pitted trivia I found on Marvel Database... Um, Beast's original furry transformation was an idea that originated with Roy Thomas with input from Stan Lee, an effort to make the character more visibly striking, which it does. I really like the hairy Beast look before he turns into a Catman. Right, yeah, The especially the... Um, I mean, everyone always goes to the 90s version, which for people of a certain age is classic, but I, I, I really like the sort of grayish-blue 70s and 80s Beast. I love the George Perez beast yeah when george yeah. press when he eventually folks what's going to happen is beast is going to join the avengers and all the stories from his amazing adventures run get carried over into the avengers where i think who's the supporting character from amazing adventures that becomes hellcat oh um uh patsy walker i don't think it's patsy walker no no no, no. that that's that's different i think it's greer yeah yeah you're right you're right I can't remember her first name, but uh, Greer. Um, yeah, who becomes Tigress or Hellcat or something? Well, no, because Patricia Walker is Hellcat. Um, okay. Tigra was originally just the cat. Right. And, um, and that was a character from Amazing Adventures, a supporting character, who was right. kind of like a love interest for Beast, even though she was married. Uh, uh, Greer Grant. Greer Grant, okay. That makes sense. Okay. So, yeah, but this is basically him going off and doing his own titles, which is funny because at the same time, his, he, he's getting his own solo adventures. In Amazing Adventures, you have him appearing as regular Beast in the reprints of X-Men. Right. Which just shows how much of a mess X-Men was at this point, and how much really Marvel didn't have faith in them as their own property again they and it's a book that was sort of a rare misfire not in that it was bad but that in it didn't really catch on for like the x-men as we know them don't really exist until uncanny uh, until the the sort of reboot with storm and colossus and nightcrawler and all that right until the giant size x-men issue where we get right the basically what is going to become the claremont era right um, no, they really don't. It, uh, the rest of it's kind of just, not filler, but foundation 
okay, this is what the X-Men are. They do exist in a form at this point, but the concept really doesn't gain its legs until the Claremont era. Yeah, I mean, the the most important thing about those early X-Men comics is that it introduced the idea of mutants, which vastly simplified the need for origin stories in the Marvel Universe. Yep, that's basically all you need to know. Um, however, I will say, I don't hate the X-Men here. No, no, it's even Xavier, who's usually a pretty big jerk, it isn't terrible here. And Creepy McCreeperson. Right, right. Um, Cyclops is always a bit of a problem for me, but, you know. Yeah, although, I will say, you know, in our first episode, I complained about Gil Kane artwork. I don't hate the way Gil Kane draws the X-Men here. No, no, I I like it. Whenever the X-Men are on screen or on panel, we get all these kind of interesting angles. Jean Grey is drawn really cool-looking. And it is the most interestingly that I've seen Angel depicted pre-Archangel. Right. Like, like there's a panel, uh, it, it's when he first grabs Spider-Man's web line and is dragging him around in the sky. Um, and there's this one really long panel that runs from the top of the page to the bottom. And it's Angel in this sort of contorted pose uh, in front of the moon uh, with Spider-Man hanging from uh, below, and it just looks really cool. Kind of like they don't bother putting uniforms on. Yeah, they just rush out because Xavier tells them to hurry. Right, they don't... So you've got Angel in slacks and shirtless with wings, which is really interesting. It's, it's, it's a better look than his costume during that time. Right, I think he still had the suspenders at this point? No, he had the blue highlights one. Yeah, he did. With with the was it with the the halo in the middle? Yeah, which as far as his costumes go, is my favorite of his costumes. I know you prefer Archangel because you're a freak, but I mean, I don't think Angel ever had a particularly good costume. So, mm, but this is a really good look for him. Yeah. Um, Iceman. I mean, Iceman's Iceman. He's got his booties. Um, right. Jean Grey. Looks really hip with the bell bottoms and the tight sweater. <laughs> right. Um, but she's she, she's a very fashionable young lady, which I think is an interesting contrast because it, at this point in their own comics, she has been still in her like late sixties styles. Right, and I think we do see at least a couple of panels early at some point of them in their costumes. But apparently they change. They take the time to change into civilian clothes to go hunting for Spider-Man. Which I guess, if they're roaming the streets of New York City, it makes sense to be incognito. I guess. But, okay. I mean, as far as the artwork goes, it's, I like this artwork. The up-the-nose shots aren't too gratuitous. Um, which is the big thing I criticize Gil Kane for. Right. Although... Morbius does come out of this looking a bit like Svengoolie. He does. He does. Which, um, for our listeners who aren't properly educated, do you mind telling them who Svengoolie is? Sure. So, um, Svengoolie is a horror host, which means that on uh, broadcast television, he hosts a weekly show where he uh, 
introduces and does regular segments before and after commercial breaks um, around a classic horror movie, usually from a package of Universal or RKO or various um, older, usually black and white horror movies. Um, and, and, and these horror hosts always have flamboyant, over-the-top, vaguely horror-themed personas. And so Svengoolie has sort of the pale skin and the, the dark uh, uh, makeup under the eyes and, and some, some uh, very stylized facial hair to create the sort of mood that's appropriate for a fun night of horror movies. Exactly. Although not all horror hosts do that. Of course, a famous ex- recent exception is people like Joe Bob Briggs, Sure, sure. Although, who who has very much cultivated a persona? Like, yeah, yeah. Joe Bob Briggs is a character just as much as Svengoolie is. He just doesn't have the the horror aesthetic. Right. Joe Bob Briggs' real name is John Bloom. He's a Jewish boy from Texas, but <laughs> uh, he he puts on this character of a good old boy. That's fair. Cowboy, even. Yeah. Somewhere between redneck and cowboy. Um, he flips from one one version to the other as needed. Yeah, but of course he hosted um, Monster Vision back in the day on TNT. And what was his show before well, that? Well, we can, we can go back further than Monster Vision. Um, um, on, it was on the movie channel um, back when that was a fairly new thing in in the early days of premium cable um and yeah so on the movie channel he hosted drive-in theater which was sort of an extension of uh his his writing up to that point he got to start writing movie reviews uh for newspapers um typically in the same sort of tongue-in-cheek style that he became famous for on television but he pretty much specialized in B-movies, genre movies, what he called drive-in movies. Right. Um, and, and and has published a couple books of his uh, reviews, I think are out of print now, but, um, but the first TV instance was on the movie channel in 1986. Uh, first it was called Drive-In Theater, later it became Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater. Um, and then they, um, the movie channel changed its format in the mid-90s. And almost immediately after, he was picked up by TNT to host Monster Vision, which basically had the exact same format as Drive-In Theater. He, he's been doing basically the same thing off and on from 1986 to the present, right. which is very cool. Yeah, he recently did a marathon, I think a 24-hour marathon on Shudder, the horror streaming service, where he revived the character of Joe Bob Briggs and did a bunch of stuff. What was it like? Thirteen movies? I think it was thirteen. Something, something like it was crazy. Um, I've only watched half of it. I think you've watched all of it. Yeah, yeah, and and again, very much in a similar format to his other two uh, shows. Um, for fun fact, uh, outside of his horror host persona, um, under his real name of John Bloom, um, he was briefly a correspondent for The Daily Show. Um, contributing the segment God Stuff. Really? Yeah, 96 to 2000. Oh, of course. I remember this. And of course, he's yeah, he, he's a famous with, with, atheist, right? Uh, no, he, I, th- I don't think so. Oh. Um, I, I think he's uh, fairly religious himself. 
He just takes, or at least he used to be. Maybe just takes a more um, cynical view. But uh, but he he did the segment that was like clips of televangelists. Right. Okay. And I think really this was just an excuse to talk about Joe Bob Briggs on our part. Sure. Why not? Be, um. Um. But yeah, Morbius looks a bit like Svengoolie, but really. We talk about horror hosts on the show because, really, that's what we're doing here. We're just comic book horror hosts, where we're going back and looking at these old horror comics and commenting on right. them. Right, and and sort of um, hopefully leading some people to uh, look at some books that they either haven't heard of or haven't really given a shot. Right. So, again, this was not a terrible issue. It certainly was no, um, certainly not the worst issue we've talked about this episode. No, no. Now, um, the end of the issue is a little awkward. Where he kisses Jean Grey. Yeah, for with no warning whatsoever. Or permission. I mean, no consent. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's not cool. No. Um, and, and really feels sort of out of character for Peter Parker. Right. In, in, for those of you who don't have the comic in front of them, we're referring to this part where um, Spider-Man decides to thank the X-Men for saving his life by planting a kiss on Jean Grey without her consent, which he would have had to take the time to pull up his mask, plant a kiss on her, and then jump out the window, which I, I won't get into, which is right. it's, it's problematic, especially in this new Me Too um, era. Yeah. And that that just it feels out of character. It feels unnecessary. Like it doesn't really do anything for any of the characters involved. Because, I mean, we all know that Jean Grey is not one of Peter Parker's love interests, and so there's there's not any there's not going to be an additional payoff from that. You know? Nope. Um, and so it just feels unnecessary. Um, I did like the art uh, in the action sequences. Um, there's a bit where the X-Men are fighting Morbius, and there's a panel at the top of the page, um, where Morbius is, like, diving into the middle of the fray, and X-Men are flying every which way, and Iceman is, like, flip... If you imagine, sort of, the panel as being a photograph, then Iceman would be tumbling toward the camera and over it. Yeah. Like, it's this really crazy angle where you've got, like, Iceman's head and hand in the top of the panel as Cyclops and Angel are flying in opposite directions and Morbius goes right through the middle. I gotcha. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, you don't see that kind of point, of, that, that kind of angle in, in a fight scene so much. It's a really fun sort of way of showing the chaos of the fight. So again, like I said, I don't hate Gil Kane's artwork here at all. The X-Men handled themselves pretty well here. Yeah. Especially Jean. Jean is really the standout here. And they they give her credit for it, too. They give her credit saying, right. Jean was really the one that saved the day here. Which is, I guess, the reason why Spider-Man decides to plant a kiss on her? I, I guess. Um, although... I, I do also um, really enjoy uh, the brief moment at the very end of the fight um, where Cyclops ricochets an optic blast off of a mirror in order to hit Morbius. Which I'm not sure that's how optic blasts work, but okay. But it's cool. Yeah. 
Do you feel like they would have resolved the issue more quickly if Beast had been with them? Maybe. I think the sciencey part would have made right. I, I feel like I, I think we would have gotten more exposition on exactly what was going on in terms of um, the toxin in Spider-Man's blood. Right, because for a for a good part here, I'm not quite sure I understood why Spider-Man was dying. No, I mean he was. He had mentioned in the other issue with Human Torch not feeling well off and on throughout the issue, and they just never explain it. Yeah, but and here, I guess it's a side effect of an imperfection in the in Morbius's blood that reacts with his own irradiated blood or something. Which they kind of just explain it off as the flu, and for, I kind of just accepted. Okay, he's got the flu. Yeah. But apparently, this is an extension of whatever happened in Spider-Man 100, which right. was a year ago in his own title. Right. Which yeah. I'm, which I don't think it gets any kind of play at all in his own book. I can't imagine it did. I I think I think. Spider-Man spending a year with flu-like symptoms would be a thing that people would remember and talk about. Right. Although, speaking of the Beast, which I promise you we did do, um, it's interesting to note that Roy Thomas cites the reason that they start having Hank Pym, not Hank Pym, Hank McCoy go through these changes as far as his Beast appearance and transforming is the popularity of Werewolf by Night. Right, right. So we, we've been debating, and you know, like, how was this whole Werewolf by Night thing received at the time? Apparently it was popular enough where they wanted to kind of copy it with the Beast. Well, and if you're trying to make the Beast a solo character, you've got to do something, because even as a mutant, his original design just kind of looks like a regular guy. Like, he's got, fair, he's got big feet, but he, he basically just looks like a football player who happens to be brilliant. Yeah. And, and so I think having him experiment on himself, doing the kind of not quite Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing, but almost, um, it, it makes him both mo more visually interesting and gives a little more pathos to the character. Something for him to contend with that doesn't involve the other X-Men or his original mutant affliction. Right. Which... All in all, I have to say, as much as we've kind of crapped on the issues for this episode, this is a really fun outing for the X-Men. It is. It feels more like an X-Men book than a Spider-Man book. Right. Um, it, because he spends a fair amount of it unconscious. I, have to, I actually think it's a better outing for the X-Men than the previous issue that we read that featured yes. the X-Men. That was a weird issue. And, and the whole, I mean, the twist of the Frankenstein monster not really being a Frankenstein monster, there was just a lot going on that felt unnecessary? I don't know. Like, Although I think I figured out the logic there. The reason it's listed as the Marvel Frankenstein's first appearance is because the monster we see in the flashbacks in that issue are the okay. actual Frankenstein monster. I gotcha. I gotcha. The that they that the aliens based their robot on. Right. But the creature we see in the modern day, Battle in the X Men, is the robot. Okay. I I can maybe get behind that. 
it's still weird, but I can get behind it. Yeah, it's it is weird, but it's already in the can. We can't take it back now. <laughs> right. Um. And I don't know. Um. It, it's you're right. It's a this is a fun X Men story. Morbius doesn't really get any additional character development. He's just sort of angry vampire guy all the time. And I don't think... And he ends this issue a prisoner of the X-Men. Yes. He's a comatose prisoner, but he's a prisoner of the X-Men. And looking ahead, we don't see him again. Hold on. This issue comes out... Sorry, this issue's cover date is September 1972. Morbius's next appearance, and they spotlight this in trivia on Marvel Database, is Fear number 20 which is February 1974. Wow. And according to the trivia, he is a guest of the X-Men until that issue. Wow. So they've just been, like, keeping him locked in a dungeon. I guess. I wonder if we would have gotten those issues in X-Men The Lost Years if that if that series had continued. Mm, yeah. Did you read that X-Men The Lost Years? I did not. Oh, the, the, hidden, um, the Hitting Years? Who, who was the creative team on that? John Byrne. Oh, right, that makes sense. Um, no, I remember it coming out, but I don't think I ever read any of it. Yeah, X-Men, The Hitting Years. John... Because that was sort of sort of like his um, Spider-Man flashback stories, right? Yeah, although I would actually like argue that it's much better than Chapter 1. Chapter... Yeah, Chapter 1. Uh, well, the problem with Chapter 1 is that what was it? Lost Years is the better version of that idea. Yeah, and or, oh no, Untold Tales. Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Definitely a better That's idea the there. One. And I think with Chapter One, the problem he had there is he was monkeying with beloved tales. Right. That's. It isn't. You know, I'm fitting things in in the cracks here. It's I'm changing the origin completely. Because right, and I know better than Lee and Ditko. Right, because he links the origins of Doctor Octopus and Spider Man, where they both right. get their powers in in base an explosion. Um, the spider messes up the balance somehow. There's an explosion. Doctor Octopus's tentacles are welded to his body in the explosion, and he's in a coma for months. Meanwhile, the spider bites Peter Parker, and he becomes Spider Man. Which, right. it's not a terrible idea. And and that was, what, late 90s? Yeah. It's funny, because that's not all that different from what was originally planned when the Spider-Man movie was going to happen in the late 80s, early 90s. No. Like, the, that was the original... Because, again, for movie-making purposes they wanted to condense the origins of the hero and the villain into one origin. Yeah, and that's understandable. And I get from a movie-making standpoint where that makes sense, and I have to be fine with it in a movie. But again, when you're saying, this is the continuity now, this is the way it mm-hmm. happened, it's like you're messing with the Gospels. Right. For fans. Um, didn't he do the same thing to Hulk around the same time? 
Yeah, I think he did. I, I vaguely remember something about a John Byrne Hulk origin. Uh, which are our Hulk aficionados, if we ever get them, like Michael Bailey or something like that, if we ever get you on the show, we might ask you about those, but... I mean, I'm definitely closer to the Spider-Man fanboy than I am to being a Hulk fanboy. Right. And in any case, um, I guess what what uh, what we were sort of getting to there is there is a fairly long period of time where we don't really know what's going on with the X-Men, and we don't really know what's going on with Morbius, but for some reason they're together. Right. Which, okay, I'm interested to see how that pays off. And I think, going back to our discussion, I think the reason... You know, we're good. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, there's a whole other long discussion why something like The Hitting Years works, why Chapter 1 didn't, and why um, Untold Stories worked. Surprisingly. I mean, I, I think there's a difference between retelling a story that already worked the first time versus filling in gaps to tell interesting stories that hadn't been told. Right, although if you looked at it at the time, you wouldn't have realized there was a gap there. <laughs> right, right. But moving on. So, as much as we crapped on issues in this episode, this was actually quite a bit of fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, I, I still say probably Tomb of Dracula was the highlight of the bunch. Right. But maybe with the Marvel 2-in-1 being close second. Team-up. Marvel team-up, rather. Yeah. Marvel team-up being a close second. And it's a it's a little bit of fun in a genre where we don't get a lot of fun. This is a <laughs> Marvel horror podcast. We right. aren't expecting to get many fun issues. It's, it's going to be a while before we really start getting crossovers between the horror characters and the superhero characters on the regular. Right, but Morbius does accomplish that. Morbius does, and and eventually Dracula does, you know? I mean, we're going to be talking about the X-Men a whole lot more. Oh, God, you're right. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Oh. <laughs> I mean, those are good books, don't get me wrong. I just forgot oh, yeah, they're all great. about them existing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That'll be interesting. All right, Trey, I think that may do it for another episode of Tomb of Ideas. What do you think? I think we're good. Yeah, this is, uh, it's been an interesting um, batch of books this time. Um, but I think, I think we have some interesting things to look forward to as we maybe take some of these characters in, uh, into new storylines. Right. And speaking of look, stuff to look forward to, next episode, episode six, we'll be talking about Tomb of Dracula number five. Werewolf by Night number 2, Fear number 10, and Marvel Spotlight number 6. Until next time. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tomb Universe Excelsior. Ha 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 